All right, open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. I'm going to do my absolute best to do the entire chapter tonight. It doesn't mean that it's going to take forever. I've tried to be brief in my notes to allow for that. Last time as we looked at chapter number 8, we saw Paul dealing with the matter of Christian liberty in regards to eating meat which has been offered to idols. And the principle he laid down was that in doubtful matters, should I or shouldn't I, the motive that we must have as Christians with our conduct is simply to regard other believers. Should I do this or shouldn't I? Well, what about that weaker brother in the faith and their conscience in regards to this matter? We won't do anything which causes a weaker brother to stumble. This is our instruction that Paul gives us. J. Vernon McGee, he, he always writes in a real quippy kind of a way here. He taught, this shows us that there is a limitation on our Christian liberty. This can be stated in a graphic way, he said. You have a perfect right to swing your fist any way you want to. But where my nose begins, there your liberty ends. And this is a great way to illustrate Christian liberty. We are free in Christ. Galatians 5.1 says, that we should not come back under the yoke of bondage that Christ has freed us from. But at the same time, if in exercising our freedom, we're becoming a stumbling block for another Christian, well, then we've taken our liberty too far. Now, already we've established that this is a principle Paul has worked out several times here through his letter to the church in Corinth. Back in chapter number 6, verse 12, he said, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Last week in chapter number eight, uh, verse number eight, he says, meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worst. You're not going to be blessed by God from abstaining from this meat, and you're not going to be cursed of God if you do eat this meat. That's the, the, the principle he made there. We'll soon get over to chapter number 10, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. It's kind of why I want to get through chapter 9 all in one night, right? Um, I've got like six messages from chapter 10 that I preached over the years. And uh, so I don't know exactly how I'm going to go at chapter 10. We don't need to be in it for six different sessions. But chapter 10, verse 23, he says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. So, Paul is working out this principle of Christian liberty very clearly with the Corinthian church, teaching them that no man should seek his own. Every man should seek the good of his neighbor. So Christian liberty then has limitations for that reason. It's Philippians 2.4. Look not every man on his own things, but what? Every man also on the things of others. Memorize that one. That's a good one to know. Philippians 2.4 Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I'm over at the fuel pump. I'm pumping some gas. I see somebody over there. They're trying to pump up a tire. It looks like it needs to be changed out. But I'm in a big hurry. But the Holy Spirit won't let me look away. Look not every man on his own things. Put your schedule aside for a minute. Look to the things of others. Or whatever that might be in your life. This is how we should be living. Mark chapter number 12, verse 29 through 31. Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. 
And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. So here in chapter 9, Paul continues writing about Christian liberty. With all of that in our minds, he now gets into his own right as an apostle. His official right, we'll call it. His God-given right as an apostle. There were some things that as an apostle, he could rightly take liberties to do. But he'll, he'll tell us here, but I don't always. And he'll tell us why he wouldn't always. So I want us to consider tonight from 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, apostolic rights. Now I'm not going to preach to you for the rest of the hour on apostolic rights because we all need to know in our daily Christian living what apostolic rights are. But I want to illustrate to you, as Paul does through his liberty to use his apostolic rights, his letting go of those entitlements for a reason, how we should exercise the same in our lives for that same reason. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Father, may you be glorified through this time of us reading, preaching, teaching, hearing the word and using it in our lives. May we grow through this time. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins in the first 14 verses with a case for rights. And in verse number one, he gives these rhetorical questions. There's four of them. He says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Now, let's think through and answer these questions. Is, is Paul an apostle? Yes. Is Paul free? Yeah, and, and, and we don't even know the context that he means by that. I think he means in Christ he has liberty. He could mean I'm not a slave. Because this was under Roman rule in society. He was a Roman citizen. He could mean that. Had he seen the risen Lord? Yeah. He had the most unique experience of any of these guys at seeing the risen Lord. He's on his way to Damascus to persecute the church and Jesus comes down and knocks him off his high horse. He really saw the risen Lord. It blinded him. And he says, are you not my work in the Lord? Were the Corinthians Paul's work in the Lord? Oh man, if he's laboring with any group, he's laboring with this group. I mean, we're only up to chapter number nine here. And it's been pretty exhausting just for us to study through it. He's really laboring with this group of people. So these are rhetorical questions. And surely the Corinthians understood a yes to each of these as they're involved in this discourse with Paul due to his apostolic authority. As an apostle, Paul knew that certain rights, certain freedoms, certain responsibilities came with the office that God had placed him into. And in the earthly sense of this time, Paul and the other apostles, they were in charge of the church. Now, there are no more apostles. And so we won't say that like pastors are like apostles. That's not the point. That's not what we understand here. Paul set up a system of elders and elders had a position, but they weren't apostolic. This was a temporary thing for the beginnings of the church. But in that day, these guys were literally in charge of the church. Now, the word was in charge, but they were the ones who were the authority and were giving the rest of God's word that hadn't been given yet. Very unique time. 
Paul then reminded them in verse number two that they had come to Christ by his own work in the Lord. He says, if I be not an apostle unto others, yet, yet doubtless I am to you for the seal of mine apostleship. Are you in the Lord? The church in Corinth was a direct result of Paul's ministry. The Corinthians, he says, are the seal. They're the proof of his apostleship. Because had he gone there and this church had not done as it had done, had it not become a biblical church, well then, is he truly an apostle? He's kind of treating this like the the Old Testament prophet. How could you prove that an Old Testament prophet was a prophet? If what he said came true? Amen. Absolutely. And so if they ever gave a false prophecy, what were they not? A prophet. And this is, this is Paul's logic here. This is what he's using here. So you guys are my seal. You are my proof of apostleship. Then in verse number three, he says, my answer to them that do examine me is this. Now, I'm going to disagree with punctuation here tonight. At the end of verse number three, how many of you, your Bibles has a comma? All right, how many of you at the end of number three, your Bibles has something besides a comma? All right, a couple of us here. I'm going to go with the not comma here. I don't think a comma is right. There's two different ways you can go at this passage. You can figure out the other way on your own. I'm only going to preach it this way. If there weren't a comma there, if it was a period, what would the this point back to? Verses one and two. I think that's what he's saying. Now the comma there would, would indicate that he's saying, all, uh, he said all of this stuff, and then he says, now here's my answer. Well, he, he's not using chapter nine to defend his apostleship. He's beginning chapter nine, assuming his apostleship and assuming they believe in his apostleship. And then he uses chapter nine to say, because of that, here's what I want you to know. If you're not careful, you'll take all of 1 Corinthians nine to teach two things. And it's used for this often that Paul was an apostle. And, and there's one other thing. Who, who's a scholar in here knows the other thing that this is often a passage used for? You should pay the preacher. That's, really, that's what this passage is used for a lot. And he makes this point in here, so I want you to grab that. You should pay the preacher. <laughs> but that's not what I'm going to preach to you about tonight. Because he's not, he, he's not going at this to say, I am truly an apostle and you should be paying me. Because he says here, I'm, I'm not asking you. I don't tell you this to, to try to get you to pay me. He said, I'm using this as a point to let you see that even though I have apostolic rights, I forgo them for a time for the sake of the gospel. And Paul's love for the gospel and his love for preaching the gospel is contagious here in this passage. So don't miss that. So in verse three, when he says this, the this is verses one and two. He says, I said what I said in verses one and two as my defense to those who would question my calling as an apostle. But it's settled and it's done now. So from there, I'm going to begin making my point. Now, what is his point? Verses four through six, he introduces this defense through a series of questions and considerations. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas, or only, or I only and Barnabas, have we not power to forbear working? So he's establishing here a set of premises about the apostolic ministry. He says, do I and Barnabas have the right to food and drink as we minister? What's the answer to that? Yes, of course. Verse 5, do Barnabas and I have the right to 
believing wives with them like the other apostles. And he even points out Peter. He says, he has a wife. Can Paul have a wife? He could have a wife. In fact, Paul fell into the other thing here. He, he taught Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter number 3, that an elder should be the husband of one wife. So Paul could fall under this whole, he's not married, so he, he doesn't qualify to be an elder. How much more could he be an apostle then? And Paul's already dealt with that. We, whew, do we need to go back to chapter 7? Anybody just volunteer and please take us back to chapter 7. Well, we, we, we gave it our due diligence. Here he says, well, I could have a wife. Of course I could. Verse 6. Are Barnabas and I the only ones not worthy of pay for our work? He says, or I only and Barnabas, have we not power to forbear working? Now he's going to go from there and he is going to deal with this issue of him not being paid. Now you'll, you'll learn about Paul as you study all of his letters that there were times that he received offerings from the church. There were times that he received offerings for other churches. He didn't keep them himself. And that he, he seems to be very settled on the fact that he was able to be a leather worker. In fact, most people believe that he did what? A tent maker. He was some kind of a leather worker and he earned a living from that. Not only did that put him in a place to share the gospel with unbelievers, but it also paid his way. And so this was Paul's way. Now, Paul is going to make the point here, though, that this doesn't have to be the way. And he's going to say, I've chosen this way for a reason. With my apostolic rights, I could be charging you to preach, Paul says, but I don't charge you to preach because I'd rather do it for free for the sake of the gospel. This is the point he's getting ready to make. So, so look at this as we go through it. So he laid out his case. Verse number seven, then he gives three supporting examples. Who goeth a warfare at any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? So what are his questions? Does any soldier serve at his own expense? Now you could probably think of a radical situation about some patriot who, you know, sold his house and bought guns and did his thing. But for the most part, a, a soldier is taken care of by those whom he serves. That's Paul's point. Do farmers eat from their own produce? Well, yes, absolutely. Do shepherds drink milk from their own flocks? Well, of course they do. We don't have to be scholars to conclude that people have a right to make a living from their work. This is his common sense example to further make the point of his apostolic rights that he wasn't always taken advantage of. Verse number eight, he says, now, this common sense logic that I'm giving you here is all in agreement with Moses' teaching. Verse 8, Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? Now, we, we have the law. We understand Moses' teaching. They would have been familiar with Moses' teaching. So he's making a double point here. This is common sense. A man who keeps cows is going to drink the milk from those cows. In fact, that's part of the guy's motivation to get up early in the morning. He just loves milk. You find a guy who hates milk, he's probably not going to be in the cow business. I guess if he likes steaks. But I've come to learn as a city boy, those are two different cows. Is that right? Am I wrong about that? I feel like I could get steak out of a milk cow, though, if I had to. But then he says, my second line of defense here is what you know from the law of Moses. And then in verse 9, he tells them what they know in the law of Moses. And he quotes directly from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox 
that treadeth out the corn, doth God take care for oxen? Now, answer that question. Does God take care for oxen? Well, yeah. And he had Moses lay it out before his people that he should take care of the animals. So Paul's logic here is, if God cares enough to make sure the animals that work are taken care of, surely he cares enough to take care of the humans that work. And he's going to make that point again here in just a moment. I think Paul's also pointing out here that God is concerned about more than just oxen. God said this, he says, verse 10, for us, or saith he altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that, he that ploweth should plow in hope. That's the way to plow. I've never been much of a farmer. I have tilled with a motor tiller before. I didn't enjoy that. I think I could get into these John Deere things that are as big as half the pasture. These guys drive around. I, I, air conditioning, Bluetooth player, TV screens, or whatever they've got. I might could get into some of that. But nevertheless, the, the whole point of your plowing is to plow on hope. When I was a little kid, I, I mowed yards. I didn't mow yards begrudgingly. I mowed yards in hope. What was I in hope of? Money? They're going to pay me. I want a new baseball glove. I'm going to mow this yard. They're going to give me $10. I'm going to go to Walmart. I'm going to get a new baseball glove. I mowed in hope. This is what Paul is saying here. Just like you don't muzzle an ox who's treading the corn, meaning you don't not let this animal eat while it's doing the work that's making this food. You, you let it eat. It's going to do more work. It's going to do better work. It, you know, it's going to have a zippity doodah in its step if you let this ox eat while it works. So he summarizes a principle here. Those working should do so in the hope of sharing in the fruit of their labors. Knowing all of this, as the apostle who established the church in Corinth, Paul has every right to exercise apostolic authority there. This is what he gets to in verses 11 through 14. He says in verse 11, If we have sown unto you scriptural things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? He said, I'm the one who brought you the gospel. It would it be a bad thing if I had you pay me for being the one to teach you the gospel? That's his question. Verse 12, if others be partaker of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Now here's the first time here he's letting into what he's actually meaning to say. He said, I could charge you. Or I could receive your offering. But I don't, because I don't want it to hinder the gospel of Christ. So he has every right to exercise his apostolic authority. But in verse 12, he talks about how he doesn't. Verse 15, he says, but I have used none of these things. Neither have I written these things that it should be done to me. So he's making the point here that, I, that I'm not exercising my authority. Or in mine, in your case, I'm not exercising my Christian liberty with a purpose. Verse 13, he talks about the priests and the Levites and how they're fed through the temple proceeds. You understand how that worked under the old covenant. He says, do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Verse 14, he goes so far as to say, even Jesus affirmed this in the ministry. Even so hath the Lord ordained they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. 
Matthew chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, the workman is worthy of his meat. Luke chapter 10, verse 7 said, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. You know, he's instructing these 70 disciples that he sent out. And he said, don't take a ton of supplies, travel light, and don't go house to house in the city because when you go to this house and you're sharing the good news and they receive it, they'll feed you. They'll make sure you stay warm. And he said, if they don't receive you, then you wipe their, the dust of their house off your feet. You go to the next place. But once you get to a place you receive, don't go house to house. And, and he followed that up with saying, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. So Paul here has, like a lawyer, he's created a sound case for his rights to be exercised as an apostle. Often in our Christian lives, we can make such a case. I'm free under Christ. This is not a sin. I can do this thing. But Paul makes a point for us here that while it's not a sin, there will be times where it's more beneficial for you to forfeit those rights for the sake of the gospel. So verse 15 through the end of the chapter then, he moves on from a case for Christian liberty to an occasion to forfeit those rights that we have. Now, verse 15, he says, I have not used any of these rights, but I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me, for it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. He forfeited his right to making an honest living from his ministry. Now, he doesn't make this point, he says, so that they would begin to pay him. He says, I'm not bringing this up so you can start sending me a paycheck. Now, he's making a gospel point here. In fact, he clarifies that he would never allow anyone to deprive him of the boast that he preached voluntarily. He says, this is my reason for living. Verse 16 and 17, he gives the actual lesson in Christian liberty. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Sounds like Jeremiah there, doesn't he? It's like a fire shut up in my bones. Verse 17, for if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. He says, I can do nothing but preach the gospel. He says, I'll do whatever I must do to to prevent being hindered in preaching the gospel. How far will he go? He says, I'll even forfeit apostolic rights so that I can preach the gospel. Now don't, don't get too theological there because you could say, well, it was only his apostolic rights that allowed him to be able to preach the gospel. Like I, I get all of that, but, but this is the case he's making here. Who had more right than Paul in this regard? Nobody. And he said, but I let that go for the sake of the gospel. What's his reward then? Verse 18, what is my reward? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Well, I'll tell you what his reward is not. It's not money. His reward is the, pre- the privilege of preaching the gospel. So he sets aside the apostolic right to earn from his preaching. Now, does this mean preachers should not get paid? No, and and we've already covered that there will be times where we see Paul receiving support from the churches. From my point of view, this means preachers shouldn't charge. Every time I'm asked, will you do our wedding? Yeah, do your wedding. How much do you charge? Nothing. Will you do so-and-so's funeral? Yep. How much do you charge? Nothing. Now, does that that mean that I don't look for a card to come in the mail with a nice fat check in there? 
course, I watched the mailbox. My daddy was an evangelist. This is one of the exercises we learned growing up. You love to see the mailman come. Those support checks might be coming. $25 a month adds up. <laughs> but I don't think that a, a minister should ever charge for the thing. No, this is an exercise in liberty. So it could be different from person to person. There may be people who say, I don't think it's a sin and I have no problem charging for my preacher. And there may be preachers out there who say, I'll come and preach for you, but it costs $5,000 or $20,000 or whatever it may be. And if th their conscience allows for that, and if people are buying what they're selling, do you blame them? Now, we get into this whole profits for profit. You know, you're not being that. Oh, if you'll come and preach, but you won't get on this or you won't get on that, we'll make sure and pay you well. None of that kind of stuff. We're not to be profiting from the gospel. But, but I don't think this is Paul making a case that a man shouldn't earn a living from his ministry. In fact, he's made the other case, hasn't he? He said, uh, everybody who does any kind of labor should earn a living from the labor that they do. So, I guess I'll be the weaker brother in this situation and say, I could never charge for the preaching of the gospel. Now, please don't cut my pay. I need to get paid. But truthfully, and this was almost the case when I came here. If you guys said to me, like, hey, we can't pay you anymore. You're going to have to go get a job. But we like you and we want you to keep being the preacher. Could you do it? I'm not going to tell you no, unless the Lord moves me. Go get a job and, you know, I have bags under my eyes and stay up late and preach you the word. That's my calling. This is what I want to do. So Paul didn't charge for his preaching because being able to give the gospel was a reward for him. And this is what we've got to grasp. Why would Paul do this? And this is how he ends this chapter. Sharing the gospel with others. The eternal rewards of him being saved, of him being able to help other people be saved and be in heaven together. The, the fruits of that labor were more than enough payment for him. That's how he looked at it. We've got to be gospel motivated like that. We've got to be to the point where we say, I'm free in Christ to do this. But it could be a stumbling block to brother so-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so. So I wouldn't dare do this for the sake of the gospel. Verse 19, he says that very thing. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. And then in verse 20, 21, 22, he actually lists some groups that he's made himself servant to. He said, I'm free. I'm not a servant, but I've become a servant for the sake of the gospel. Unto the Jews, verse 20, I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. There's some controversy around why would Paul have had Timothy to be circumcised? Well, this sums up why Paul would have had Timothy to be circumcised. Verse 20, to the Jew, he became as a Jew that he might gain them that are under the law. Verse 21, to them that are without law, as without law, not being without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. So to the Jew, then in verse 21, to the Gentile. And then verse 22, this is really where he really gets to the Corinthian church. Because this is what he's been dealing with since chapter number six. To the weak, became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. Now the Corinthians were carnal. The Corinthians were letting sin go on in their church. He's dealt with that. But what else do we know about the Corinthians? They were rich in the fruits of the Spirit. They were rich in the work of the Holy Spirit more than the fruits of the Spirit in their assembly. What this led to was this idea of we're strong and we can exercise our Christian liberty. And Paul says, yeah, but you're doing it to the detriment 
of the week. And so to this church, he says, hey, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. And to the weak, I stopped being strong for their sake. These strong and knowledgeable people in the Corinthian church, they refused to make allowances for the weak among them. I'll tell you what this looks like often in, the, in a church like ours. There's like this level of Christian. And anybody who's less than that level of Christian, we wonder if they're even saved. And Paul is saying here, don't treat them like that. Before you got to that level, people didn't treat you that way. They loved you. They helped you along. They cared for you. They instructed you. He says, now that you're not weak anymore, now that you're strong, you've got to care for the weak. But the Corinthian church, they're, they're refusing to make these allowances. And their logic is sure. They're saying, we're not going to be bound again under this yoke of bondage. We're free. You told us, Paul. We told the Galatians. But we heard about it. We don't want to be bound under that bondage anymore. So we're going to exercise our liberty to the glory of God. Imagine in our day, they would have been going around saying, Soli Deo Gloria. And Paul is saying, no, here's what would be to the glory of God. Is if your weak brother, who it's going to lead him back into the life of sinfulness when he sees you down at that temple buying your meat, the sacrifice to an idol. If he finds out that you've abstained from that for his sake, and he lives a long Christian life, he's sanctified and he's glorified and you are together in heaven, that'll be to the glory of God. Much more than you being able to go down there with a good conscience and buy that meat. But the strong in the church in Corinth, they insisted on eating meat, sacrificed to idols, because they correctly understood their freedom to do so. We're right by the Scriptures. Now I want to be right by the Scriptures. We strive to be right by the Scriptures. But if we have the gift of prophecy and we have not love, what are we? Nothing. Clanging symbol. So in contrast to them, Paul became weak by willingly conforming his behavior to that of the weak. By limiting his freedom in this way, he made certain that he did not cause weaker brothers and sisters to fall into sin. Verse 23 then, he says, And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker thereof with you. He refused to allow his own freedoms to prevent others from following the ways of Christ. He was motivated for the sake of other people and for the sake of the gospel. He was con concerned to see this good news, a resurrected Christ, this good news of salvation in Christ, he was concerned to see it proclaimed and believed throughout the world. And then he ends in verse 24 through 27 with another illustration. He's done a good job here giving us these lists of questions to get our minds thinking about it. Well, he ends here with another illustration. Verse 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so find I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, I'm going I'm to preach these verses to you, but I want to give you a thought before we get into it. How many of you have ever heard these, these particular verses preached on? Running the race. Don't, don't be a shadow boxer, all of that. 
And I'm not trying to correct every preacher who's ever preached these verses because I've preached them the same way and I will at some point in my... You can take these verses along and you can, you can make a good biblical case for like running the race. There's verses that talk about in other passages, running the race, laying aside weights that so easy beset us, um, aiming for the target. You know, you don't want to just hit the, the board. You want to hit the bullseye. All of these kind of things that Paul talks about here. But I want you to think tonight, we've, we've given a, a decent amount of time to all the other verses in chapter nine. So we know what he's talking about in this portion of the letter. He's talking about being all things to all men. He's not talking about holding yourself to some super Christian holy standard level and this makes you be a winner in the race. Don't miss that point here at the end of this chapter. That is a good point and you can make that point in other portions of scripture with the same illustration, right? So it's still okay that it, you, you want to take that from this. But in our context tonight, what's Paul's point? His point is, you want to win the race? You want to run to win the race? You want to land the punch, the knockout punch? Then you've got to be willing to become weak for those who are weak. You've got to be willing to be a Jew to the Jew, the Gentile to the Gentile. Often we, we get so concerned with, I want to win the race. That even as Christians, we, we don't see any problem with sort of like shoving somebody out of the way that we can get ahead. But they're a brother. So what does Paul say? Just think of running a race. Now he makes several points here that are good points that we need to know. Know you not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. If you needed a proof text for why every kid shouldn't get a trophy in sports, this is it. This is what Jesus believes. Only one, only one receives the prize. And then his instruction here is, now you run this way so that you can obtain that prize. Run to win. Because not everybody wins. And then he says, this is going to require strict training. Verse 25, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So they do it for the trophy. They do it for the banner. They do it so they can be champions. Now we do this for eternal purposes. We're not competing for a temporal trophy. So we've got to have strict training as we prepare to run and as we do run this race. And what is that specifically in this context? Forfeiting our rights at times. Now we do understand this through sports. For athletes to be top of their game, there's some things that they cannot be involved in. There's some things that they can't expose. They've got to eat a certain way. They've got to drink certain things. They can't drink other things. They've got to be making sure they do these activities. They've got to make sure that they're not doing activities like that I like to do. Sleeping, feasting, some of my favorite things to do. Naps and eating. Two of my three favorite hobbies. And Paul says, run to win. Run to gain eternal rewards. What does he mean? You're going to have to forfeit your rights in Christian liberty. Yes, you're free. But sometimes you're going to have to forfeit those rights for the sake of others. That's how you run to win. He said, I refuse to live as somebody who's just running aimlessly. I'm going to win the prize. Hey, that's the way to be, Christian. This whole like niceness to Christianity has just gotten under my skin lately. I know I gave you a lecture on it a few weeks back. I won't give you another lecture on it. But like, we're on the winning side. We're victorious. 
Satan loses, and everyone who chooses his side loses as well. Those who are on the Lord's side, they win. They are victorious. And to the victor goes the spoils, right? We don't need to back down from that. In fact, we need to stand firm in that. The world doesn't need stuttering Christians as they scream for answers. The world needs Christians who are sure where they are, what they know, and how they're getting where they're going. So Paul says here, I don't run aimlessly. I run to win. I'm not, he said, can you imagine Paul? Wouldn't you love to hear Paul preach this sermon? What a guy. And for him to just say, you're not going to beat me. I'm going to win. He brings in boxing then. I know some of you young men, you really like boxing. Well, here's your boxing verse. He says, I therefore so run not as uncertainty, so fight I not as one that beateth the air. He says, I'm not just a shadow boxer. I like these videos you see online where these two guys are going to fight, you know, like a YouTube video. And the one guy, he's like, yeah, come on. And then the other guy, he gets into all this crazy karate stuff. You know, he's going to do it. And the other guy just walks up to him and wham, just knocks him out. (laughs) There goes all your your flash and bang, you know, as, as you fall on the ground. Paul says, I'm not a shadow boxer. I'm not a poser. I'm not a faker. I intend to land the knockout punch. This is what we've got to do with the gospel. We've got to intend to land the knockout punch. We've got to intend to run the race to win. And so Paul says, I discipline myself for the sake of this gospel ministry. To the weak, I become as weak. To the Jew, Jew. To the Gentile, Gentile. He said, I have the right. I have the right to profit from my gospel ministry. But he said, I I refuse that because I don't want you to take away from me the thing that I consider a reward. And he said, it's when I get to preach the gospel and someone is converted and a new life in Christ is formed and then a church is started and then the city becomes on the map for Jesus and then I go to the next city. In order to encourage these Corinthians to forfeit their rights for the sake of other Christians. This is what Paul does. He, he describes his ministry in this way. One of sacrifice and one of accommodation. Christian liberty. Our rights in Christ. We're an entitled people, aren't we, as Americans? These rights we have in Christ, they must be balanced with discipline. Paul had one great goal in life. To glorify the Lord by winning the lost and building up the saints. To reach this goal, he sacrificed immediate gains for eternal rewards. Let's pray together.